Paul told Timothy in his final, in his final thoughts, he's coming to the end of his letter, verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. There you go, brother. You saw it. It's in the Bible. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Well, how many of you here are Timothy? Nobody's even got the name Timothy, do they, tonight? And nobody is Timothy. So if Paul told Timothy to do something, does that mean it's going to be us? Where do we get the right to read everybody into this? Like I said yesterday in Sunday school, I have a real problem with people reading things into the Bible that aren't there. I think God could say exactly what he meant. And if anybody wants to say, oh, well, he really meant this. You're telling me that God didn't know what he was saying. And I'm going to set or you're going to set as the judge. Uh, don't say that around me. We'll, we'll go round and round over that issue. Um, figuratively, verbally at least. So if, if we're going to say we should evangelize, then we're obligated to know something about how the gift of evangelism works. Now, if you turn over to Acts chapter 21, we can do that. We can do that. Because thankfully, Scripture has it. And you know, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that there are little verses like this. We see these verses and read over them and say, well, you know, it's not an important verse, really. Oh, yes, this little verse is. You might not have paid attention to it, but it actually is a very important verse. Let's see, Acts chapter 21, verse 8. And it says, uh, The next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we stayed in the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven in a bowl with him. So, okay, so we stayed at somebody's house. What's the big deal? Philip the evangelist. Now we have someone who we can go back and look in the book of Acts and see, what did he do? He was an evangelist. So if you can do what he did, then you are an evangelist. If you can't do what he did, then you're not an evangelist. That's simple. It makes pretty good sense to me. So, now we do know, I put in your notes, that in Acts 6-5, Philip was in Jerusalem where he was appointed a deacon. Now, I realize that there's a possibility that there's more than one Philip. It's possible that this wasn't the same man, although personally, I think it was. And I, put, and I put down in your footnotes that there's 17 times Philip's mentioned in Acts, and there's at least two different individuals. Now, I suspect that this is the Philip that was an evangelist. He had an office in the church. It was a deacon, but by spiritual gift, he was an evangelist. Now, if I'm wrong, then we can dismiss point number one, but it's, it's just a point to note. Now, Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. Let's take a look at it. We're not going to spend a lot of time reading all these passages. Uh, some of them will let you probably read on your own for the sake of time. But when you look at this, it should be pretty obvious what an evangelist is, what an evangelist can do. And if you can do it, then that's what your gift is. And if you can't do it, should you feel guilty about it? I hope you don't. I hope you don't. Okay, beginning at C. This is right after Saul. Well, let's start at verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that was Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. This is something that's going to bother Paul because he's the one that starts this persecution. And it's going to haunt him because you'll see it reflected in 1 Timothy and especially in 2 Timothy. You'll see hints that this still haunted him for what he did. It says there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. 
As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So if Paul felt bad later, I can understand why he would. Therefore, they that were scattered went, uh, scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 4, but notice it says they went everywhere preaching the word. I want to sh- show you something about this that context will, extended context in this case will help you understand something that people have misused. This verse has been misused. I had a study Bible that said, now the gospel begins to go everywhere in the world. Wrong. That's not going to be true. We'll show you in a minute, but we're, we're going to come back to that. But in verse 5, then Philip, now this is the Philip, we know that's an evangelist, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed to the things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the, the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many, many, were take, many taken with a palsy, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, here comes this man into town. <clears throat> he is from someplace else. He is, he is from Caesarea. You notice point number one. He was, he was I believe he's a, under point A in here. It says, Philip was not from Samaria. He was from Caesarea. We know that in Acts 21.8. So he comes into town <clears throat> and he's a complete stranger. And yet he's able to evangelize the city as a complete stranger. Now, if you've ever done any sales work, has anybody here ever done any sales work? Yeah. If you have, did you have to do any cold calling, cold calls? How hard is that? It's horrible. Now, I can tell you this. I went out on church visitation when I was first saved. I was, I was zealous all over the place. So that's going to be at the Bama Brothers. So you and I are going to be... I've got an argument with him. I think my pile of debris is going to be bigger than yours. It gets burned. We'll have to argue about that sometime. But I was just beaming with zeal. So I went out on these visitation. And let me tell you, the hardest thing to do is to go up to somebody's door that doesn't know you and talk to you. Because you know what? Most of the time, and this was, this was like 50 years ago, roughly. Even back then, you come up to this door of somebody's apartment. And these were all apartments because of the... Washington, D.C. area was a suburban area, and it was apartments built there because of the land space and so forth. And people, they weren't really interested in it. They, some of them would slam the door in your face. Now, I would hate to see what it would be like today if you'd even try it. Oh, you might get attacked physically or something. You know, the dog bites? <laughs> they'd be turning the dogs loose on us for sure. So, you know, and the cold, call, cold calling is, is difficult. If we did what, we call, what I call cold call evangelism, let's call it that, cold call evangelism. That would be going up to a complete stranger and sharing the gospel. Now, has anybody ever done that besides me? And I've done it. Okay, and, and did you get, what kind of results did you get? Just, just if I might put you on the spot, brother. Uh, probably less than half a percent. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I, some of the things that I remember vividly was I was told to take care of my own soul. And I was told there's a place that I should visit that's hotter than Florida in the summer. And uh, I was encouraged to go there. And uh, I don't recall getting too many people that were interested. Some people would take the track and, and, you know, and they would somewhat. I couldn't do it. You know why I couldn't do it? I didn't have the gift of evangelism. But here this man could go up to people. They didn't know. He could have been a horse thief. They had no idea who he was. He didn't have to establish a personal testimony. Ah, that's, that's a little bit different. He could do something. Now, if you think that's not, I mean, so he could, now, you'll notice I have point number C on here. As an evangelist, 
Philip could go to total strangers and preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, without being rejected. Anyone who's attempted to share the gospel with a total stranger knows that the believer is more than likely, more likely to be ignored than heard. And that's stating it nicely because you might also be, you might also be uh, offered an honorary trip to someplace, very warm. And I think you know what I mean. I was told that several times, and I, for the life of me, I can't imagine why anybody would say that to someone that was just a kid trying to, you know. But I guess they don't like the gospel and say, don't like it. Now, after this happens, Philip is sent to an unlikely place. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, the same man. Now, here's something interesting. Those who like to have big evangelistic meetings, and they want to bring in all kinds of people, and they say, you've got to have people. It's not going to be worth our while unless we have lots and lots of people. It's got to be lots of people that get saved. Well, if that were the case, tell me why then. Verse 26 of Acts 8, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, go to the south, go toward the south, unto <clears throat> the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Desert. You're going to get down. This guy's coming off of this big evangelistic campaign. He's counting his numbers. My Billy Graham would be jealous of this man. And yet God says, no, you go down here. Why? There was one person. Now that tells you something about how important evangelism really is, real evangelism. I'm not talking about the big name stuff where they put people up on stage and have celebrities sing. If there's such a thing as a Christian celebrity, I personally, I don't believe in celebrities, especially Christian celebrities of all things. But this man went down, and he goes up to a total stranger. Now, let, let's read on down through here. Let's look at what happens. Tell me how likely this would be, how easy it would be to do something like this if we had to try it. And so it says, verse 27, And he arose and went. And behold, a, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, he was a man that had charge of all her treasures. I would say he was, number one, an important man. Number two, very likely a very wealthy man. And he's out in the desert. Hmm, okay, we'll keep that in mind now. And as was returning and said, verse 28, was returning, sitting in his chariot and reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join yourself to the chariot. And Philip ran thither to meet him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and, and said, understandest thou what thou readest? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was out in the desert somewhere doing something and somebody came running up towards me, uh, I think if I had a chariot, I would start it up and go. I think if I had a car, I'd start it up and go. Or I'd roll up the windows. I, a total stranger comes up to you? Now, under normal circumstances, I don't think anybody would stop and converse with a total stranger. You notice I put it in your notes. Because the desert highway, this is the bottom of page 14, was a dangerous place because robbers re regularly portrayed this area or patrolled this area. And one writer said this, and here's a quote, and I have the reference on the bottom. You can check it out. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a notoriously dangerous way to travel. Keep that in mind. He stops on the side of this dangerously, dangerous to travel way, and a total stranger comes running up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? It sounds to me like it'd be a, I would be thinking of a robber. It's, so it's a dangerous way to travel. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea, where, where, near where Jericho stood, is about 1,000 feet below sea level. In about 18 miles, the road dropped 4,000 feet. That's quite a drop. 
It was a steep, mountainous road with narrow, rocky defiles and blind turns, which made it a place to be wary of robbers. In the 5th century, Jerome was still referring to this as the bloody way. Okay, the bloody way. And here, this man, this wealthy man, sitting in his chariot, reading, sees a total stranger come running up to him, and he invites him up. That is the gift of evangelism. You and I could never do that. We would never, I would never even think of trying. I would never try to do something like that. Most of us probably wouldn't. And we'd be well advised not to because uh, the results would probably not be very pleasant. So now you have, once again, you see this person can come up to a complete, total stranger and he can share the gospel and not be rejected. Now, if you think about it, <clears throat> and all the times that you, maybe you shared the gospel, even to people that you had a testimony with, even sometimes people who know you and know your testimony, and they won't argue with the fact that there's something different, even they will some, often reject you. But this guy went to, a, he went to a city, the city with one accord, listened to him when he preached the gospel. And then he went to one man, and the, I mean, the most unlikely, these are the two most unlikely things. A city, the whole city gives, with one accord, it says, with one accord, like one person, they listen to this man. He could have been a horse thief. One man, a rich man in the desert, and he comes up to him and the man says, come on up and explain it to me. That's evangelism. Now, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, then you probably can't do that. And I would not recommend trying it. If I might stop for a moment and make an aside, when you share the gospel, you know the best way to do it? Just wait for the Holy Spirit to say, share it. Tell this person, when someone has come up to you and said, what makes you different? Scott, what makes you different? You're this FedEx driver and you're always happy. You're always smiling. You're friendly to everybody. What makes you different? Kevin, what makes you different? Dave, what makes you different? Now you have an opportunity. Now the door is open because they've accepted your person. They want to hear what makes you different. And as I look at that, I say, that's somebody telling me, give me the gospel. That's not what they're saying in their mind, but that's what I hear in mine. Because then you know that you can share it, and that the probability of you having someone spit in your face, figuratively speaking or otherwise, pretty low, pretty limited. They may not agree with you, but you might plant a seed, or maybe you water. Remember it says in 1 Corinthians 3, it says some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. You never know. That's the way we should be doing it. Unless you have the gift of evangelism. I'd be very careful about going out and just spouting off at everybody. Another, just another aside before we get back in the notes. If we go out and, and we just insist on giving people the gospel willy-nilly, just everybody pushing on them, think about what that does to that person. They reject the truth. They have more light that they've rejected. Therefore, they're going to have a greater judgment. And here I'm out there thinking, I'm doing this great noble thing. I'm giving the gospel to these people and the Spirit of God didn't direct me to do it. And because of that, they have greater condemnation. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do? Think about that, folks. Really, I'm not saying, and please don't misunderstand me. I am not against sharing the gospel when you get the opportunity. The Holy Spirit directs, do it. I have no problem with it. I have no problem with people leaving tracks that have the gospel in them. Pastor Dave uh, Spurbeck has tracks that have the gospel in them. If you don't have any, get a hold of Dave at... Uh, Valley Baptist, and you can get from him tracks that are good, solid tracks. I have no problem with doing that. 
But I'm very skeptical about the fact that we have to go out and just everybody we see, you've got to tell them, you've got to tell them, you've got to tell them. Be careful. I don't think that's a good idea. Now, evangelism, witnessing, and the believer on page 15. The misunderstanding of what witnessing is and how it relates to evangelism is that, is that uh, the misunderstanding of what it is and how it is used relates to the fact that Christians use those two terms as interchangeable. Now, we've already seen and presented that evangelism is primarily done by one with a gift of evangelism and it involves the ability to present the gospel to complete strangers without offending the unbeliever. As long as, assuming that the evangelist is spiritual. Now, I guess there would be a possibility if it was a carnal evangelist, they might do something they shouldn't. But we're, but I put that in there, assuming, assuming the evangelist is a spiritual individual. Now, what is a witness? Well, a witness is a lot simpler. A witness is a is a testimony to verify the claims made by someone. That's my definition. A witness is a testimony to verify the claims made by someone. A witness can be for someone or it can be against someone. Now you have two examples. Look at John chapter 1. You can see now witness depends on context. You can witness for it or you can witness against it. And Christ works witness to who he was and they certainly didn't witness against him. They certainly witnessed for him. But in John chapter 1 this is talking about John. We should read verse 6. There was a man, John 1 6 there was a man sent from God, God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So he was sent to bear witness, to validate the claims, say, this one is. And if you look down a little bit further, one of the things that John does say, and this is very interesting, and this, uh, uh, this, is, this is something that you, you ought to notice. Uh, and verse 29, let's see, wait a minute, okay. Verse 35 is what, okay, verse 35. Again, the day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus, Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Do you know why John kept ministering? I think you see a kind of a hint of it right here. What John the Baptist was doing as he ministered after Christ was introduced and he baptized him is I think he was trying to push his disciples to go and follow Jesus because look what he did here. Two of his, he says to these disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. Now if you remember in the third chapter, a little bit later, what John is going to say, and let's see, verse 30 is he's talking about how all people are going to Jesus instead of to him. John 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said this, beautiful words, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, what did he mean by that? How was he going to decrease? What if he pointed his disciples to go after Jesus and follow him? He did here, you see it back here, he took two of his disciples, and it turns out that one of them was Andrew. Andrew was one of the better disciples that Christ had. In the list of disciples, he comes up toward the top of the list along with Peter. So I think what, what John the Baptist did is two of his best disciples, his most mature and his best, the ones that understood the most, he said he took them aside and says, there's the Lamb of God. In other words, he was pointing his disciples and he was going to decrease because of it. And John had no problem with it. 
I wonder, Pastor, how many people, to, how many pastors today could do something like that? That they could say, he must increase, he must decrease. Uh, just about anything. I don't think you'd ever hear that out of most men. I don't think you'd ever hear that. Well, very interesting thought. Just something to look at. So a witness, you can see that John was a witness for, and of course, if you look at Mark chapter 14, you can see it. And this is, this is obvious, but we'll look at it anyway. <clears throat> in, in verse 55, it says, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus Christ to put him to death. And many bear false witness against him, false testimony against him, but their witness agreed not together. So there's, you have witness against them. They're, they're claiming the facts say something that they didn't say. They were, now, the next thing is, in, is important. You'll notice that a witness can be verbal or nonverbal. And here's where you really get into what's important. Now, there's not a lot said in here because I think it should be somewhat obvious. If a witness can be nonverbal, then that, and we're going to see some, some examples of it here, even though the word isn't used. I wish the word had been used, but I, there's no question what it is. But if you look over at um, John chapter 5, you can see that here's a witness, and it wasn't verbal at all. It didn't say a word. But it validated, it pointed to something. There was no question about what it meant. In John 5, verse 36. Whoops, no wonder it was in the sixth chapter. Okay, let's try the fifth chapter. That might work better. Speaking of John the Baptist, beginning at verse 33. You sent unto John, and he bare witness to the truth. Now that was verbal. But I received not testimony from man or witness from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He was, past tense, he was a burning and shining light. So John is at least in prison, and I believe when it says he was, it makes me suspect that his head's cut off, which would put it, as we found out last week, it would put it right up around the beginning of the last year of Christ's ministry. <clears throat> but be that as it may, he was a burning and shining light, and you were, Past tense, you were, you're not anymore, which makes me think he was dead. You were for willing for a season to rejoice in his life. But I have greater witness, greater testimony, greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. That's a greater witness. You know, now John the Baptist was quite an impressive witness. Everybody came out to see him. He was a big name. If, if we want to use the word celebrity, you could say he was a celebrity of his time. Everybody came to see him. Everybody wanted to hear this man. But Jesus said, I've got a greater witness. What I do. Now stop and think about it for a moment. What is the greatest witness anybody has on a job? Oh, you go to the boss and say, I'm the best guy you got here. Just ask me. I can tell you I'm the best that there is. Is that going to do you any good if you're lazy? What's the best testimony anybody has? It's what you do. Because if you do the right things, do you have to go blowing your own horn? There's an old Baptist proverb I like. It's, uh, it has nothing to do with this, but it came to mind. It's, he who tooteth not his own horn shall verily ne'er hear it sounded. That's your, that's your Baptist proverb for the night. So, he who tooteth not his own horn shall verily never hear it sounded. Now, I guess there are some people that actually believe that. <laughs> but, so... The primary form of witness 
that the believer, you know, point number D, and this is an important point, the primary form of witness that the believer should be or should have is first, nonverbal, second, verbal, assuming that the believer is spiritual. Please notice that. Assuming the believer is spiritual is important. Because if I'm carnal and if you're carnal, then there's somebody that needs to do some work. Because I can't convince an unsaved person. Who does the convincing of the unsaved to bring them to the gospel, to bring them to faith in Christ? The Holy Spirit does. Does the Holy Spirit normally routinely bless and use a carnal person? Now, I suppose he could, but as a a general rule of thumb, is God in in the business of using a carnal person? Well, if he was, it'd it'd be making, teaching would be a lot easier, and so it'd be a pastor. You could just get up and be carnal. Wouldn't have to worry about it that God wouldn't be blessing very much. Well, I think now, while witness does not, I want you to go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, here's one that shows you, and uh, don't push this too far when it says, we'll talk about it here in a second. Uh, but in 1 first, uh, first Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 is a very well-known, uh, very, very well-known passage. It says this in first, first Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation or manner of living of the wives, while they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear. Now, you'll notice it says they will not be, that there's, they will not be, or they'll be one without a word. It's a nonverbal witness, but there's a, there's a real problem here. That word T-H-E, the definite article, it's readable English because the Greek does not have an indefinite article. But in English, we'd have to say that they may be one with, without a word. Won't have to, the woman won't have to say a thing if her life matches up. If she's a spiritual believer, she can win her husband over and he'll believe the gospel. But she can win him. You know, it's, he's not getting saved because his wife is living the right kind of life. He's being won over. He's being open. He's being won to the point where now he's going to listen to it. And it can be done without a single word. You see it? It's right there. Just take out that one word. And if you, if you have any doubt about it, if you've got it interlinear, take a look and see if there's a definite article in front of that, in front of W-O-R-D. There isn't. There's not one there. Without a single word. Now that, I know it doesn't say witness, but what is that? It is the lifestyle, the conversation, is how this person lives that has the ability to win someone. And she won't have to harp at him. She won't have to jump up and down and beat on him and nag him to go to church every Sunday or anything of the sort. No, he'll see the difference and he'll want what she has. It works. It really does. And really, when you get right down to it, I know it's talking about husbands and wives here, but guaranteed, if you in your daily life, if you have impact with people, that are unsaved, if you're living the right kind of life, at some point, you might be surprised that someone will ask you what makes you different. You've won them over to your side without saying a single word. But now once they ask you, now it goes from being nonverbal to now you've got to be verbal to tell them. But you know, we've got to get it right. If we say everybody's an evangelist, like they say, and just shove them all out there and get them all going, do they have a chance to show their testimony? They don't know. When I was handing out those tracts when I was a young person and invited to go to very warm climates, uh, 
there was no way those people knew me that was I was I a juvenile delinquent? Was I a troublemaker? Was I was I a drug user? What was I? They didn't know anything about me. No wonder I couldn't do anything. They had no idea who I was. And I didn't belong out there. Well, I didn't know. Now, although witness does not occur, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and there, this is a beautiful example. Uh, I know that witness isn't here, but I don't know what else you'd call this other than their testimony that what their lives indicated, what they were doing with their lives. Beginning at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, beloved, your election of God. Look at all the things these people knew. They knew about election. And they'd only, Paul had only been there three Sabbath days, three Sabbaths. They knew about election. They knew, how, they knew about love. They knew about faith. They knew about hope. They knew how to direct those parts of the fruit of the Spirit. Boy, these people were really on top of it. And they really were. For our gospel, verse 5, For our gospel came unto you, not in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much insurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Interesting. Paul could have been an evangelist only, but he says, You know what manner of man we were among you for your sake. So Paul established something of a testimony while he was there in three weeks. Now, how he did it, I don't know, but Paul was something else, that's for certain. He said, So that you became in samples, or examples, to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith to God is spread abroad, so that we not, need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols, and to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Now I said, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, but you said, we don't have to say anything about your faith. What does that mean? Paul said, we don't have to say anything about how you're living. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious how they're living. You see it back here, what he said. He said back here in, in verse 3, your, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in Christ Jesus. So they had a testimony, and it was what they did. And that's how the word of the Lord could sound out from them. It'd be very easy once you've got that kind of testimony. Now, I believe that whenever one, one, has, a, one has the proper spiritual life, whenever one is right where they should be in their spiritual life, there's one thing that I think must be done, and that's 1 Peter 3.15. Let's go back over there. I think this is important. This is one of those things that a believer needs to do, and this is very much, it very much reminds me of what you would see. I think this might be Peter's way of saying what Paul said in Romans 12.1 and 2. I, you'll see, if you really look at Peter's epistle, First and Second Peter, both of them, you can see that there are things that he says when you stop and analyze them. They mean the same thing as what Paul said, but he said them in a different way. And that's characteristic of teachers. Uh, Pastor Kevin and I don't sound like Dr. Laverne Schaefer, but Dr. Laverne Schaefer had a, a huge imprint in our lives. And we learned a lot from him. God used the man. But we don't get up here and parrot Dr. Schaefer. Wouldn't want to do that. That wouldn't be right because I'm not him. Nowhere near the man he was. 
So, but, so Peter says some things, and I believe when you look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, I think you'll see something that will tell you very much what you see in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, from Peter's terminology. Uh, and we should really go back in the context and, and look at verse 13. We'll start there. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But, but, sanctify the Lord God. Now there's a textual variant here, and I believe it should be the way we've always understood it is, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. There, there, is a, there is a variant here, and I put it in your notes, the exact Greek words, which is sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And I do believe that that is what you see back in Romans 12, 1 and 2, stated from a different viewpoint, stated a different way. You're setting aside Christ as Lord. Now, that's more than just saying, well, he's the Lord of my life. No, that's I'm going to be a spiritual believer. I'm going to see myself in him. I'm going to let him live out through me. That's, he's now becoming Lord of my life because he's living through me. It's not me that decides what to do. It's not me that decides where to go and what to say and who to say it to if I'm going to share a testimony. Not, it's not me at all. It's him as Lord. So you sanctify him as Lord. Then you notice what it says. You sanctify him and be ready always. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you. Notice that asks of you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Please notice this. Look, how clo- look at this closely. Be ready to give an answer. Does it mean I'm out there doing it all the time? Am I always running my mouth telling everybody? Well, I'm always running my mouth anyway, Lynn, but I'm not this way. I'm not always telling the gospel. No, it says be ready. Ready to do it. I'm ready. I'm there. I'm paying attention to what's going on in my life. I'm paying attention to how others are reacting to me. And trying to make sure that I'm, that I'm where I should be. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asks of you. Who starts the conversation in this, say, in this case? Do I go up to him and say, hey, do you want to know why I'm different? Listen, you miserable sinner. Do you want to know why I'm different than you? I'm so much better than you. I might as well have a little fun if I'm going to be silly. I mean, that's No, it says every man that asks you. The most blessed thing that you can ever have happen is if someone comes up to you unbidden, who's been around you and says, Brother Kevin, Brother Scott, Brother Dave, what makes you different? You don't act like these other people. You don't complain about this. You don't complain about that. What makes you different? That's somebody who's asking you reason of the hope from our point of view. What are they really asking? They're asking you to give them the gospel. What makes you different? Because what made you different, what made me different is the day you believed that gospel and got saved. That's what made us different. But you'll notice it says you're ready to give that answer. Now, you're not going to be ready if you're a carnal Christian. You're not going to be ready. That supposes that you've made Christ as Lord in your life. That's like Peter expected you to understand Paul's theology a little bit because he does talk about it in his second epistle. He expects you to understand that. You're going to be a spiritual believer if Christ is Lord in my life, if he's living through me like he should, if the fruit of the Spirit is manifest, then... I will be in a position where I can be ready to give that answer and people will see a difference that they might ask me. Now you might say, well, gee, Don, if you sit back and wait for people to ask you, you might only give out the gospel once every five years or three years or ten years. You know what? If that's all the more you're supposed to do, then that's all you better do. 
Who says we have to give the gospel out every day to everybody we know and shirt call them and say, come on, sinner, listen to what I have to say. That, all that's ever done to the, to the faith is, is black eye. I, I, I'm really of the mind, looking back at some of the visitation that we did for our church many years ago, probably was more harmful than it was beneficial. There were probably a lot of people that got annoyed because some neighborhoods our people went through two or three times a year. And I'm sure they got tired of seeing us because if they wanted to come, they would have come the first time. Maybe they'd have come even before we said anything because our church was right on the corner, right out in the highway. You couldn't miss it. If they didn't come, it's probably because they didn't want to and they didn't have to be badgered, but we did it. So I wonder sometimes if going out incessantly isn't really a mistake, isn't really a detriment. Because it says, be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you. They have to approach you. If they do that, they're going to listen. See, I can't go up to somebody like an evangelist and have them accept what I have to say and accept me as a person and, and not question who I am. But, I, but when this happens, then I'm on the same kind of footing. They're not going to reject me now because they can see the difference. They ask me because what? Because I am a witness. And a witness starts with what I do. And if I make Christ Lord of my life, then I'm ready. Then all I have to do is be ready to give an answer. Now, you don't have to be... Please, folks, don't let anybody ever tell you that you have to have... Written that note, say, okay, I'll say, here's the Romans road, I'll go down to this point over here, and there's points over here, and so other. No. What did Jesus Christ do in your life? Someone says, what makes you different? Well, you have to say, well, you know what? In your own words, say, I believe the gospel. God took my life and changed it when I believed the gospel. Christ forgave my sins, and he made me into a new person. That's not very hard to say, and everybody can say that in their own way. And you say that he died on the cross for my sins. He paid the price for them. And he rose from the dead to show that it was done. After he was buried, he rose from the dead, and now he's, he's, he's resurrected, he's glorified. And he saved me that day. He changed me. It's not that hard to say. It doesn't take a Rhodes, scholarship, a Rhodes Scholar to say those things. It's something very simple. But you're ready to give that answer to those that ask you. Now you notice it says, of the hope that is in you, with what? Meekness and fear. Meekness. Just be logical. Tell them the facts. It's very simple. This is what God did in my life. I don't have to jump up and down and, and light sparklers and shoot off fireworks. Just say, this is what God did in my life. Because if they can see that difference and they've asked me, just give them the answer of meekness. That's all it takes. So, you'll notice I put it here before. A single word is said. The spiritual believer is to be ready or prepared to give an answer. Ready means... And there's your word there that means pertaining to a state of readiness to be prepared in the mind. And that's the definition we took out of one of, our, one of our favorite lexicons. And the answer concerns the conduct of the believer. Because if you look down in verse 16 of 1 Peter 3, then the following verse, having a good conscience as whereof they speak, evil, they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed who falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So there will be unsaved people that will do that. And even if they do that, after they've asked you, they, they, they'll be, they may be ashamed of your good conversation. There's nothing there. Your life speaks for itself. And so that, that's really the answer. Now, we're going to get on. Let's see. Well, we're going to... Well, we're running short on time. Let's look at uh, point number two. Now, I did make a point here. Anyone can evangelize if they're led by the Holy Spirit. 
if you're led. Please, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, I would not recommend you going out and evangelizing. I would wait until you had an event, a situation like this that you're ready to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope. You be prepared to do it. Wait for that opportunity when someone is open to it. They ask you something. They, get, they probe around about your spiritual life. They probe around someone why you're different. Wait for that. But now if the Holy Spirit directs, anyone can evangelize, just like anyone can get up and preach a sermon. Now, you, you're not going to do it as good as Pastor Kevin does. I can guarantee you that. You're not going to do as good as Brother Scott would do it. You probably won't even be as good as I am. That's setting the bar pretty low there, folks. But, but you see what I'm saying is that you can do what a person with a gift does in some cases, if there's a need to, if the Holy Spirit directs, but you're not going to do it as well as the person that has the gift. And that's that simple. Uh, you won't, we can't, anybody can evangelize if the Spirit leads. Now, because as part of the gift of evangelism, the evangelist has no, no problem in approaching total strangers with the gospel. And also because it's per, part of the spiritual gift, the evangelist is normally not rejected by the unsaved. And by, by the way, just a quick note, uh, if, if you have a spiritual gift or you think you know what your gift is, and whenever you use it, people start to reject it or get annoyed by it, you better think twice. Now, the reason I'm saying that is I know from back in Oregon, I know some people who thought they had the gift of exhortation. And uh, I think they had more like the gift of meddling. You know, because they would meddle and people would get offended. They would bristle when those people would come. You have the gift of exhortation. They're over there telling them what to do and they're using it as an excuse to say, now you ought to be doing this with your life. Well, now, if, if that was a gift of exhortation, that person would probably come in a different way and would probably say it in a different manner. And the other person would say, you know, I think you're right. They wouldn't get offended if it's really the gift of exhortation. That's a big one, Pastor. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that's the one that people abuse. That is, it gives you the right to meddle in other people's affairs. And boy, I love to meddle. No, I hope you don't. But so, what we're saying here is it's the gift of evangelism, point number B, is it's part of the gift. You normally, they will not be rejected because an evangelist, that's part of their spiritual gift, they will not normally be rejected by the unsaved. Now, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to have 100% success. Although, if the Holy Spirit directs them at the right time, they could have 100% success. Now, I don't know how often they'd be sharing the gospel. I have no idea. Now, because, because believers with other spiritual gifts usually have a harder time in approaching total strangers and more often, will, and most often, will be rejected before they, before they can even get the facts of the gospel out. Now, I, I've experienced that, and I think probably some of you have. Brother Scott, has that ever happened to you when you started talking about it before we could even get to the gospel? They said, get lost. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, and, and so that's where we have to recognize the limitation. If the Holy Spirit directs you to do it, that's fine to do it. But realize that there's, there's some things stacked against you. Now, there's no prohibition against evangelizing. There's no prohibition against evangelizing for Christians that don't have the gift of evangelism. But on the other hand, there is no command to evangelize for those who do not have the gift of evangelism. You are not obligated to do it. Now, if you love the Lord, if you're a spiritual believer, then I would go back to 1 Peter 3.15 and say, if you're a spiritual believer and if you're really living up to what you know, you're going to be willing to do it. You're going to be ready to do it. But God's not going to push you out there and make you uncomfortable to do something you can't do. My word, God is not unreasonable. There's no commandment for you to evangelize. 
Now, I know people are going to come right back and say, well, what about the Great Commission? Well, we'll talk about that. We'll have to talk about that next week because we'll come back starting at point number three. And this is a big one. This is one I really hope, I don't think anybody here has a problem, but you might have a friend that's a believer that has a problem that they feel guilty because they're not evangelizing all the time. And if you don't need this, and hopefully you don't, you may have a friend that does. And don't hesitate to share what you know. Now, you notice I have a footnote in here. There's no, there's no reason, for, reason for believers without the gift of evangelism to feel guilty that they don't evangelize. Pastor, Pastor Kevin Jeffrey frequently reminds his people that all service, and that's to the Lord, is voluntary. All service is voluntary. In other words, you're not compelled. You shouldn't feel guilt. You shouldn't feel like, I've got to do it. I don't want to do it. What would you say if someone said that to you, Pastor? I've got to do it, but I don't want to do it. What would you tell them? Don't do it, right? right. Yeah, I know Pastor Kevin well enough to say that. So we'll come back at that point next week. And uh, we have four weeks, so we will probably get through this. And we're going to have time to get into the section that uh, is one that I, once again, I've never heard anybody do a study on the message of salvation in the tribulation. But we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And it might be a surprise. It might not be a surprise. It won't be lengthy because, well, there's only seven years that message is going to be done, and it's going to be really quite different than today. So, you know, there won't be evangelism the way we have today. There won't be big evangelistic rallies in the tribulation. I don't think you'll find that. Be too busy doing other things. Trying to stay alive is one of them. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, and please keep in mind that we are not saying in any sense of the word that you shouldn't be willing or that you shouldn't be prepared or that we're not saying that you shouldn't evangelize. We're saying if God leads you to evangelize, yeah, you can do that, but you're not going to be as good as an evangelist. But when you understand the difference, what I am saying is don't try to be an evangelist. Try and be a witness. Be a witness. The life shows it first, then the mouth can start talking. Because I found out early in my Christian life when I didn't live the Christian life and tried to shoot my mouth off, I got called hypocrite. And you know what? I was a hypocrite. So we're not saying don't evangelize. We're saying be a witness. That's what you need to do.